Mark Lynch of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With me today is Basil Salouk, a professor at the Lebanese American University. Uh, Basil, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So you're new, you've been doing research recently on the new forms of sectarianism in the Middle East. Tell us a little bit about what you've been studying and uh, what you think you've been finding. Well, since I was a graduate student, I, I've been uh, doing work on sectarianism and uh, uh, sectarian power sharing uh, formulas. But uh, I grew increasingly disenchanted with uh, the way sectarianism wa- in Lebanon was studied, particularly the primordial culturalist approaches to sectarianism, and also trying to reduce it simply to institutional uh, factors. Uh, So I decided to come up with a new approach, uh, which borrows a lot from Michel Foucault, uh, my former teacher at McGill, uh, James Tully, Antonio Gramsci. And I look at sectarianism with my co-authors in this book, uh, who, who are all my former students. I look at it as a form of uh, a disciplinary system that produces uh, docile uh, sectarian subjects, one that is undergirded by a specific political economy and that gives rise to a particular ideological hegemony. So explain how this plays out in, say, in Lebanon, where, where you live. So instead of starting from the cultural perspective that says Lebanese are sectarian uh, because sectarianism permeates their culture, uh, we uh, look at different levels of analysis. We look at uh, uh, personal status laws, family laws. We look at the political economy of the country and how that is hijacked by an increasingly overlapping political economic elite that has captured the state and places the resources of the state at the service of lubricating their clientelist networks. We look at electoral laws. We look at the media. We look at uh, civil society relations and how Uh, the political sectarian elite has captured big spaces in civil society. We look at the army, uh, and we also look at other factors which allow us to give a much more detailed analysis of how sectarianism is a constructed phenomenon historically, but more importantly, and this is the question that we've tried to answer in this book, why and how has it been reproduced, and why is it so difficult to move away from it? So instead of taking this as a, a culture, instead of taking sectarianism as a cultural variable that exists throughout time, we actually show very dynamically in the book, and by using different cases at different levels of analysis, how sectarianism is being reproduced, and why is it so difficult to uh, move away from it. Now, Lebanon seems like, in many ways, an easy case for this because of the consociational system and, and the structure of laws that, that I think, as, as you say, lock people into place. What about in, uh, in, in other countries where you don't have that same highly developed, institutionalized system of sectarian uh, politics? Well, what we fear is that a lot of countries in the Arab world are becoming like Lebanon. So historically, Lebanon was considered in the Arab world as the outlier. And because you can trace the emergence of sectarianism to the middle 19th century, 
as a result of overlapping international region and local dynamics that were ultimately institutionalized in the 1860 Reglement Organique and then carried over into the institutions of Grand Liban and then independent Lebanon. But what, is, what, what we fear, what I fear now, is with the sectarianization of geopolitical battles in the, in the region, uh, many countries are becoming like Lebanon, where people think, start thinking of sectarian, tribal, ethnic uh, divisions as, and identities as primordial, and then the only way to get out of the uh, conflict uh, is through institutionalization of these identities uh, into uh, new power-sharing pacts. And that, what that does is, 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 is it freezes the, these uh, identities and makes it very difficult to move away from. Now, what about situations like in uh, the, like the real war states and the failed states, uh, you take like an Iraq or a Syria, where I think a lot of people look at this and they see really new types of sectarianism, much more virulent, bottom-up, maybe driven by social media or by you know, the formation of these local militias. Do you see this as following the same logic or is this a different type of identity politics? I think the problem, the difference there is that this has been, a lot of this is driven by the sectarianization of geopolitical battles. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that this does not become important once you securitize historically constructed ethnic, tribal, sectarian identities. It really doesn't matter what It doesn't that. matter. And then what happens is that at some, at some moment in time, you have to end the conflict. And usually this is done by the institutionalization of these identities into new power sharing okay. agreements. We see it today, well, in Iraq, this is obvious. Uh, uh, despite attempts to build what political scientists call a liberal consociational rather than a corporate consociation, at the end of the day, the dynamics are very similar. And in fact, the, the problems of reforming the political system in Lebanon are exactly the same as those that we are witnessing today in Iraq, albeit Lebanon's sectarian system dates back to the middle 19th century, whereas Iraq's dates back to 2006 and onwards. But you also begin to hear the same voices about the need to come up with power-sharing formulas in uh, Syria. Yemen is another candidate for this situation. So whether it is bottom-up or political elites uh, instrumentalizing these identities, at the end of the day, the, at the end of the day, the major problem is that people start looking at these identities as primordial, and they start behaving as if these identities have been always with us as part of these ancient hatreds. And it becomes very difficult to come up with a counter-narrative. The book that I co-authored with some of my former uh, students is an attempt to show that there are ways to exit this, uh, this uh, situation. I mean, if you get to that condition of the kind of the internalization of these uh, sectarian or primordial ideas, it, is there still value for academics or for analysts to go and point out the, how recently they were constructed or the artificiality of it? Or at a certain point, should we just acknowledge that this is the world as it actually exists and design political institutions and strategies 
accordingly? Well, I think you know my answer. <laughs> but our main objective, principally as academics and educators, is uh, to always show that there are alternatives. Uh, to borrow from Michel Foucault, it is to uh, investigate the history of the present and to always uh, demonstrate that what we take as unchanging uh, identities or patterns or dynamics are really historically constructed and continue with us for a number of institutional, uh, discursive, uh, clientelistic reasons rather than uh, for some unchanging uh, behavioral patterns. So this is why I think this kind of work that we do in, in our book is liberating because it does demonstrate that there are things that you can do, whether they are economic reforms, institutional reforms, uh, or other changes that could open up space for anti-sectarian or cross-sectarian movements to emerge. And what is interesting is that, you know, we, our book came out in uh, June 2005, uh, which meant that the manuscript had been submitted in December 2014. And in August, the popular uprisings mm -hmm. exploded in Lebanon, and they also exploded in Iraq. And I think one of the nice things about the book is that it anticipates the emergence of such anti-sectarian, cross-sectarian movements, but more importantly, it also anticipated the way the sectarian political elite will deal with them. It, it, they tried to contain them, sabotage them, and ultimately they used uh, coercive means against them. So I think it's very important at, at this very dark moment that the region is going through for academics to demonstrate that this has not been the way things have been historically and that there are always possibilities for change. Yeah, how deep does this uh, sectarian internalization go though? So say for example, by some miracle, uh, Lebanon decided to change its voting law and allowed people to vote you know, just changed it to a, a non-sectarian system so that people could vote for whoever they wanted to, you know, eliminate consociationalism completely. Do you think that most Lebanese would still just continue to vote uh, along sectarian lines because they've so fully internalized those identities? Or do you think that they would pretty rapidly abandon that and, uh, you know, just start voting on, you know, other kinds of issues? Well, it's, I mean, it's impossible to know, but right. I mean... No, actually we do know, uh, because uh, we've recently had municipal elections, and we, last summer we had this uh, garbage crisis, the uh, garbage collection crisis. And what is interesting is that if you change the terms of the debate, uh, you immediately unleash counterfactual class, regional, gender, environmental identities. And this, I think, proves that uh, sectarian mobilization and sectarian modes of uh, identification are not set in stone. They are uh, a consequence of uh, a whole ensemble of practices rather than a cause. And so if you can dabble with that ensemble, if you can change the electoral law, decentralize power, then you see that you can unleash the kind of identities that it is in the very nature of the political economy of sectarianism to make sure that they do not emerge. 
Well, let's see how far the argument goes then. You mentioned before that the content doesn't necessarily matter. So look at a case like, say, Egypt right now or, or Libya, where you have pretty profound societal polarization, but not along sectarian lines. Uh, do you think that it would end up looking similar to what you've described about sectarianism? Or do you think that there really is something about sectarian identity which is different from these other kinds of polarization? Uh, sectarian tribal ethnic identities, I think the way they are securitized and the consequence of their securitization is the same. There's, not, there's nothing uh, peculiar about sectarian identity. It's, it just, it's just about how it divides society and then how you get it to reproduce itself. Yemen is a very good example. Nobody had heard of sectarian differences until recently, it was all tribal. Now, the only thing you hear about in Yemen is uh, sectarian identity. So I don't, I, I don't think it's, there's something peculiar about sectarianism. What I'm much more interested in is the repertoire of practices mm -hmm. that sustains them and reproduces them. Uh, and whether this is sectarian or, or tribal, uh, we have to look at them within this repertoire. Now, you've mentioned several times uh, the regional geopolitics of it. How much of this do you think is simply driven by the Saudi-Iranian competition versus being organic or indigenous to each national context? Well, I think a lot of it is driven by the sectarianization of what are otherwise realist geopolitical battles. And I think only by situating uh, these uh, conflicts within the particular geopolitical moment, can we explain their timing? So why now, rather than 10 or 20 years ago? And I think the only thing that helps us explain the timing of the explosion of these sectarian tribal uh, identities is the post-Arab uprisings, geopolitical, and the spread of these geopolitical wars. Ethnic issues, particularly in, in Iraq, are different, are different because this has always been there, this conflict between the Kurds in the north and Baghdad. But certainly, the, the explosion of sectarianism in the region can only explain with reference to the geopolitical battles. All right, well, uh, I want to thank you, Abbas Salouh, Lebanese American University. Uh, thanks for joining the POMEPS podcast. Thank you, Mark.